This is Multinew Media. Hi everyone, I'm Chase Raz, and the audio quality may be a little bit off this week. I'm here in Orlando with Christopher Woodward, our editorial co-host. There's a little bit of a drawback, like I mentioned, with the, the audio quality. Hopefully it's going to be okay, but the real benefit is that for, uh, I think, the first time in recording, Christopher Woodward and I are sitting face-to-face right now, and we're here to talk about a uh, pretty interesting topic. Hello, folks. Um, what we're going to be talking about today is eSports. Um, that's right, the sports where you don't necessarily have to get sweaty unless you're, you're really losing poorly. For those wondering, okay, eSports, we're talking about video games, guys. Think about this for a minute. 1972 was the year of the first known video game contest. It was on October 19th at Stanford University. Students played Space War. Nice. In 1972, the big prize, a year subscription to Rolling Stone magazine. Hey, that's a pretty good prize. Now, here we are, many years later, and in 2017, in Hengwen, China, they're going to be opening the first ever dedicated eSports stadium, which will hold 15,000 spectators <laughs> to watch eSports competitions. Um Last year, according to IHS Technology, 2.4 billion hours of esports video were watched last year by millions well, this around just, the world live. Th- this became really interesting because now we have marketing opportunities, we have captive audiences, we have dedicated players and training um, hours and hours and hours a day. Um, I, I, I want you to keep going with this, but just sort of in the back of our minds, I'm already thinking some marketing and business opportunities. I mean, it's crazy. It, it's first of all, you have to remember, it's a spectator sport, but it's a different kind. It's a spectator sport which mostly features millennials, you know, waging battle in in the world of cyberspace. But it's expected to generate more than a half billion dollars in revenue next year. Deloitte and Touche figured this out. Their forecast is this thing is going to trend up in 2016, up 25 percent from 2014. Five hundred million, a quarter of that money, North America, but the industry is largely dominated right now by South Korea. Yeah, it has to be an Asian. South Korea has you know entire. I'm literally South Korea has a sort of I don't know what they call them, but addiction rehab centers for teens who are so addicted to esports and e competitions that they really need psychological help. Uh, so okay, there's a downside. Maybe we don't want to exploit that portion of it too much, but you know that half a billion is going to grow into a billion, is going to grow into two billion, and on and on from there. It's just it's amazing. Again, you just look at it from the growth standpoint. And these numbers that we're talking about is is mostly for the competitions and people wanting to spectate, see them live, watch them on streams. That doesn't count all these people who then, after they go to these events, they go out and they upgrade their computers. They go and buy software, you know, in different peripherals to you know become more involved in it. Or you know, if you think of it in terms of traditional sports, little Jimmy goes to a baseball game. Little Jimmy wants a new glove, wants a new ball, wants a new bat, so he can play the game. That's what's happening with esports. We're having people go watch these tournaments, watch these games, and it motivates them to get more involved. So they start buying more product. And it's just growing. And I mean, it's crazy to think about this, but you look at that millennial age group, and 
apparently 75% of the revenue comes from that age group between 18 and 34, uh, 82% being men. But its growth has been so exponential and it's such a coveted market. You can see why people are salivating at the chance to get a bigger piece of it. Major League Gaming, which is one of the organizers of these esports competitions, was just purchased by Activision for $46 million. Um, say that again. $46 million. $46 million? For the organizers of these competitions. Major League Gaming. Right. So they're not the technology providers. They're not, not the video game managers. They're just the organizer of these. I, I mean, if we talk about tech valuations, it's not a large amount. $46 million for a company isn't a super large amount. But again, we're talking about the organization that simply uh, puts together uh, these competitions, correct? Yep. This is strictly the events people. I think that's a pretty good uh, – You know, I don't know how much venture capital they had in. Uh, that's kind of impressive in its own right. It is. It's huge. And – this is also a company, Major League Gaming, that you know they had third-party relationships with a lot of different game companies. So this isn't just Activision buying a company to put on events for them. This is Activision purchasing a company that they are going to continue to run as a separate entity, putting on events for multiple game companies. So it's just a matter of them seeing it as another piece of a bigger puzzle. Um, you know, and the mandate that they gave over is, is Activision wants to be the ESPN of esports, uh, which is funny that that quote recently came out. It was, I think it was their CEO, Michael Sespo, Sepso, sorry. Um, but what's crazy about that and mentioning ESPN is ESPN. So Michael Sepso had said they want to be the ESPN PN of gaming, yeah. which is just funny because just recently ESPN, the actual ESPN rolled out a section on their website devoted to articles and videos about esports leagues and tournaments and whatnot. Interesting. They had run an article in the ESPN magazine. Actually, they released a whole issue devoted to sports video games. It got such a response that they're now set up on their mobile and on their website specific sections for esports. And the plan is to start carrying more and more live broadcasts of esports competitions on ESPN too. Well, you know that makes sense because ESPN, right? Entertainment Sports Programming Network. There, there's a nice entertainment portion that goes beyond sports. Um, even though we're calling esports sports um, by the traditional definition, it's more of a competition or a. Yeah, and again, it's just so much about the growth. You know, the fact that they see you know in 2017, 150 million viewers. Esports brighter days are definitely ahead of them. That said. The game developers and the game companies are a little wary of this growth because, believe it or not, I mean, we're in, in 2016, the video game industry still has this fear of what happened in the 80s. There still is that fear of the video game industry collapsing. And you, you would almost find it laughable today given the way the platforms sell, given the fact that video games no longer are appealing strictly to young kids, you know, it appeals to adults, millennials. Obviously, you know, my generation, your generation, we grew up with video games and we still play video games. But yet in the industry itself, there is still this fear that at some point they're going to oversaturate, they're not going to have the next great idea, and they're going to start seeing their platforms and everything just, just plummet. Um, that's still a fear. And that's one of the reasons why even yeah. with this massive growth of esports as a spectator sport, there's a little bit of hedge in their bets. There's a little bit of 
this could all fall apart. There is. And there's also the intellectual property portion of it that some of the game developers are still struggling with. That the idea is that the game is manufactured and they own all of the IP as a part of it. They own the characters. They own the scenery. They own the code behind it. All of that, right? All the stuff we imagine as the IP. And what we talk about traditionally, when we talk about IP overlapping with video games, is let's say you and I are really into a video game and, and we make a video series of us playing that and we put it on YouTube. Uh, but if we put this video series out there, we're essentially creating our product based on somebody else's IP. Now, a lot of the leading esports uh, game developers have pretty much opened up to this new 21st century phenomenon and said, all right, we put this out there. You can make derivative content of it. You can't, you know, other than modifying a level, you can't change the game itself, but you can utilize the game as a part of esports or as a part of a competition or as a part of a video tutorial series. But that's not every single developer. No, and it's just, again, there's so much to see. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the technological aspect for a minute. Because something else that really separates esports from traditional sports, if you will, at the end of the day, baseball, the game, has not changed dramatically from what it was. Right. Some rules get changed, maybe some equipment changes. Ster- steroids change. Steroids, you know, <laughs> enhancers yeah. get used. Um, the same with football, soccer, all your major spectator sports, in general, closely resemble what they were 10, 20, 30 years ago. Esports have been around for about two decades, mm-hmm. pretty much. However, how different is the mechanics, the controls today versus 20 years ago? You look at the Atari 2600 joystick versus a PlayStation. It's going to change again. It's not out of the realm to think that what we're seeing now being done with keyboards and joysticks, is it going to be, you know... You know, is it going to be retina scans? Is it going to be brain waves? You know, how are we going to be using? Well, you know, maybe that's more things. like NASCAR than football or baseball. Now, if we do go back to the beginning of, of, and we're talking American football, if we go back to the American football beginnings in the 1800s, we had a lot of rapid progression, especially as this was uh, primarily a college, a collegiate sport. Uh, by the time uh, you know, by the time this is a national phenomenon in the United States, the rules had changed significantly. The entire purpose of the game almost had changed to be much more of a physical contact sport. So, but but still, it sounds like what you're talking about may be more similar with NASCAR or Formula One racing, where the technology behind. Uh, the the actual sport is going to continue to change to the point to where, if I remember correctly, I think it was Formula One racing recently introduced some type of hybrid parts or, or some some uh, sort of twenty first century technology, and there was a lot of backlash of, you know, we want noise, we want these loud revving engines, you can't use these electric motor or whatever the case was. And again, I don't remember the specifics. But um, that may be what we're looking at with esports, but on a much more accelerated pace. Yeah, and I think there's with esports, there's less of that. You know, we want it the way it was. It's more we want it to be better. We want it to be faster. It would be more intuitive. You're concerned about the nanoseconds between the key press and the response uh, within the game. Yeah, and and, and can that be improved? You know, can we become motion censoring? You know, which could make it into more of an athletic sport, actually. If people actually had to wear a motion sensor suit wow, yeah. in order to control their games. I don't think we're going to see too many um, 
you know, virtual football games done in that way because what's the right? Why not just go play football? But um, but yeah, for a lot of different applications, that makes sense. If you're wandering around in a in a world, you know, World of Warcraft type thing, you have a VR headset. People are watching this. That how can we make it more uh, immersive? How can we make it to where you have to have a little bit of physical skill in addition to skill with a controller? Well, and you bring up your virtual reality helmets. Think about that for a minute. If the participants are going to be wearing virtual reality helmets, maybe the spectators will want to wear a virtual reality helmet as well to experience what's going on with the game. Um, there's so much with the technology as far as the game controls, improvements there. But another area that really is, again, of concern within the industry is the games themselves. Because while the genres remain consistent in esports, the actual games being played, with the notable exception of Counter-Strike, has been different. We've seen games really shoot up in popularity in esports competitions and then take a sharp decline as another version or as a game within that genre ends up taking its place. So again, the pressure on the developers yeah. to consistently, okay, in the whatever, you know, first person shooter or in, you know, the sports genres, who's coming up with the next idea? Because the shelf life of these games, at least in terms of esports and people being interested in watching them as spectators and engaging with them online, tend to drop off. We have a few that are that are really steady, though. I would imagine your Call of Duties for your first-person shooters and whatnot. Um, but, you know, I, I almost wanted to ask earlier, and I think I'll ask now, uh, are you involved with uh, any esports? Do you really play a lot of these games, or at least competitively? Because I know uh, I, don't, I don't do a lot of gaming. But you mentioned before, our generations, we're, we're anybody listening practically today, we all grew up with video games. We all play something whether we realize it or not. Hell, I was up until 3 o'clock the other night playing a stupid game on my phone, right? But I don't consider myself a gamer. What I do know is the game I do play, StarCraft from uh, Blizzard, Activision Blizzard now, uh, StarCraft has been in this eSports world for, when did the original come out? 1990-whatever. And it's been one of the staples of esports since. So we're talking almost 20 years of history there. But but yeah, some of these are going to come and go really quickly. Are, are, are you involved in any of these specifically? Well, it's funny. The, the, the game, and it, this brings up the point, um, Star Wars Battlefront. Uh-huh. Obviously, one of the big game releases. Uh, big of, games of the in 2015, season. yeah. Uh, and there are competitions for that. You know. However, what I like to play is I play the original Star Wars Battlefront on PC. Again, back when you know the whole idea of peer-to-peer gaming was like radical at that point. However, every time I log on, I don't have a shortage of people to play with. And that's something about the staying power to games. Whereas those involved in esports worry about how hot the game is going to remain in terms of spectators and being able to do big tournaments and have large audiences. The games themselves, once they hit a certain niche market, they stay and they have that staying power. And, and to bring it back to, to old school gaming, it's like Stratomatic Baseball. There are people that still play Stratomatic Baseball the way it was played in the 1950s. You know, there, there's just there's a group that will always hold on to that. And I think that's an interesting development when it comes to esports. Someone like me who's holding on to that original old school Star Wars Battlefront. Now, people are going to smirk and go, well, but the new one's so much cooler and a controller. And you're right. 
But there's something about playing that old school battlefront that's appealing. So for someone like me, I'm in that niche market where I'm still playing that old school Star Wars battlefront. And there's still thousands of people like me online playing that playing old the same school thing. game. Yeah. And then we see that, you know, even outside of esports, we see that, um, especially with EA, when they mismanaged their relaunch or reboot, reboot of SimCity, right? Not in esports, but they, they decided to make this game more collaborative so you were interacting with other people. Well, how many folks loaded back up, you know, SimCity 4 because the, when EA mismanaged the product, everybody said, well, I'll go back to the most recent thing that was worth uh, something that's of course going to happen in the esports world, and uh, you know, I, I I'll keep using the example of StarCraft, not to give it away how much I sometimes get into that game. Uh, I don't get a chance to play it frequently, but I do get really obsessed with it from time to time. And um, you know, it's I, I don't think there are a lot of people going back and playing the original StarCraft. Pretty much everybody's on too. But what it taught me in in terms of esports is. Once you see a company start organizing their video games by seasons, one of two things is happening. Either one, you have a really good built-out environment where there's thousands of people in the universe at any given time. Or you have a game like uh, some of the ones that we've mentioned, Call of Duty, StarCraft, where you have an audience that is going to remain there. Uh, for a long period of time. The job of the developer at that point is to continue that franchise forward uh, I guess without screwing it up. I think that goes back again to what their concerns are in the industry. They're so, let's not mess up a good thing. Let's not make the mistakes our forefathers made. Let's not release E.T. the video game on Atari, um, which, by the way, was not the reason for the collapse, people. <laughs> I know so many people want it to be that way, but it's not. Um, you know, and it, mobile, was a, it was a big victim of the collapse. It was synergistic. It was. But it was. Not the reason. Um, you know, you mentioned mobile gaming. That's mm-hmm. something you're into. And that's something that they're still, while it's in the mainstream, they're still trying to figure out where it fits in for competitive reasons, you know, for actual eSport. You know, they're moving in that direction because obviously so many more people are playing their mobile games now. Yeah, and with competition there, typically you're, you know, little word games, whether it's word with friends or you're doing card games like poker, um, not a lot of... And, and there are some examples, and I, I know some people out there are going to say, but yeah, but what about this title or that title? But we don't see necessarily millions of people in this key 18 to 34 male demographic with some form of disposable income or, or money. We don't necessarily see them gravitating towards these mobile cooperative games. Yeah, and again, you know, I mentioned the numbers for North America, and obviously we touched upon you know, the popularity in Asia. Yeah, North America and Southeast Asia are the focus points here. You know, but interestingly enough, this April, April 27th, the first ever eSports industry forum is taking place in London. In London, England, it's going to happen. Studios, publishers, companies that are already involved in esports are going to get together. It's going to be mass. It's going to be a two-day event. Um, and what they're looking at doing is they want to take the heads of these esports organizations, their marketing directors and whatnot, and also get some of the key stakeholders here. You know, the technology providers, the service providers, the streaming platforms, as well as the traditional broadcasters. Get them all in a room to start talking about. Okay, where is this going? You know, esports is still relatively new in the Western world, you know, but no one company has shown uh, really that they have all the answers for what could happen here. Yeah. Get it together, obviously, exchange some ideas, but build these relationships. 
and get some continued growth in this industry. And I think that's a big part of it. Once again, it's it's much like every other form of entertainment technology. It's a matter of getting, okay, the the people that are coming up with the game ideas, the people that are putting on these events, the technology providers, the innovators in technology, and getting them all to work together towards common goals. Um, because that's what it is. It, it's such an interesting industry in that so many of these you know, chefs have to be in the kitchen for this to work. This is not the type of industry where you can just be, well, you know what, I'm a service provider. I, I'm going to do it all myself. You know, you need all these different parts. I think that's why it's so interesting to see what Activision's doing as far as purchasing an event's end and incorporating it into what they're doing. It's going to be real interesting to see what companies, and obviously we're talking major entertainment companies, you know Disney, Sony, who takes the big steps to try to form an all-encompassing unit that can really exploit the market out there. The big evil conglomerates. The big evil conglomerates. There's money to be made here. You know, I mentioned YouTube earlier, and I am a little bit surprised uh, uh, that they're not more involved. I mean, YouTube, arguably a good portion of the revenue comes from advertisement serves to people who are on there, especially uh, especially the sub-millennials. We're talking about millennials right now, which are almost, I think all the millennials, are almost all of them are 18 at least. Um, so the, the, the millennial generation right now is practically the 18 to 34 block that coveted block. But when we look at sub-millennials, kids from 5 all the way up to 16 right now, they're on YouTube watching other people play video games, whether it's so that they can help themselves play better, so that they can learn how to beat a particular level, or just because they actually enjoy watching um, other people play video games. Uh, So uh, the growth is likely there, but what about you know what about a, a service like YouTube? How how can or are they involved? Well, you know, YouTube is interesting because I always look at YouTube and I think of it as they tapped into a gold mine. They became synonymous with online video. When people think online video, they think YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, and while they've obviously gotten involved in events and partnered with companies at the right time, often I think YouTube is just content to make sure we have enough server space. And just let the cash keep rolling in because it doesn't seem that they're necessarily aggressive at times in finding new partners and finding new methods. But yeah, YouTube, I mean, this is a goldmine. I can only imagine the amount of ad revenue YouTube has gotten from people watching streams or not even streams, but just recordings of, you know, competitions in the past and whatnot. And it's funny, again, talk about generation gaps at time. I actually have a friend who talked about how she doesn't understand how her son watches YouTube videos of other people playing games. Why isn't he playing the game? Right. You know, and it's 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 very similar. Again, well, the, the you wonder that analogy. until you've been stuck on you know like uh, I don't know some weird level of Elder Scrolls, and you're like, how the hell do I get past this wizard? And then you finally understand. Well, oh, okay, now I see why I'm going to watch people do this. It sounds like you're talking from experience there. Um, maybe a little bit. Yeah. Again, it's not unlike <laughs> Spectre Sports, yo. Why do you watch the NFL? You can go play football in your backyard. Well, people in the NFL are a lot more exciting when they do it. <laughs> right. Plus, you know, I don't games. have to get I don't have to be the one to get the concussion. Um, you know, and and furthermore, and I'm I'm not making that joke joke lightly. Sometimes when you have competitive sports like that, so I made the concussion joke. Well, that brings the issue in that sporting event out to the forefront. 
and in in esports, we have a couple of different issues that if we if we're very future oriented, if we're futurists here and say, okay, what's the what's the social benefit we can extract from this? Look at the types of things we can bring to light. Internet addiction. Uh, you Absolutely. know, if we talk about the the communities in Asia, especially where where e gaming is really large, it's absolutely uh, commonplace to to get help if you're addicted to the internet, just like it may be here in the United States to get help for gambling or any other you know issue like uh, alcohol or drugs. Same type of thing. Understanding that people can be addicted to the to the internet, to video games, to digital devices in general. Um, I, there, there are going to be people who overdo uh, competitive electronic gaming, but we at least have a forum. If the, if your message is maybe you should put the phone down at dinner, if you're the person who's constantly saying that, if you're the person who has the nonprofit trying to get people to engage with their families more because you see economic benefit, all of these types of issues that are related to dev- device-centric worlds can be propagated. Oh, absolutely. Someone with an addictive personality – is I mean easily, you know, esports, e-gaming can definitely become their new addiction, um, you know, and there is that concern. There's that whole generation that worries that you know we're we're, we're turning into zombies, you know, we're attached to our screen. Um, that said, do I feel necessarily that the content is the culprit? Because if it's not e-gaming, is it going to be another form of content on their mobile device? It's more probably a combination of restraint or having more options. For your entertainment, you know, I mean, you, you hate to use the to, to quote William Shatner on Saturday Night Live that get a life, people. Yeah, you know, go outside once in a while without your phone. You and know, and those, the sun on your those face. are some of the misconceptions. Some for some people, that's going to be true, right? And I think that's the great thing about esports is it'll bring some of that to the forefront, and we can determine all right who really has that issue because they just need to go outside and they'll find something to do, and who truly has an addiction, and how do we start to treat digital addiction, especially. Um, you know, if we talk about the future workforce, everything they do practically is going to be digitized in some way, form, or fashion. We do definitely need to call this stuff into light now. Not to hijack the conversation from e-gaming, but it, it's something that really runs parallel with it. It's true. And again, there's that constant, you know, as educators, we're constantly barraged with the, you know, are people really learning anything anymore? Right. Or are they just mindless drones uh, I won't bring up drones. They're just mindless zombies. <laughs> That's a different you know, episode. Being being guided around, you know, by by their devices and whatnot. And, and to that, I say, well, one, there's a certain level of individual responsibility. Then there's a certain level of parental responsibility. And then, as educators, there's our responsibility to make sure that they see the world inside and outside of technology. And, and you know, it's something obviously I've always felt passionate about. Is don't blame the technology. Blame the upbringing, you know, and for a parent who is going to use the mobile device as a babysitter, the same way a parent in the 60s started using their televisions as babysitters, don't be surprised when you end up raising a child that never wants to put the device down or never wants to turn the TV off because you've allowed them to be raised that way. And I think so much of it goes back to upbringing. But then, again, you also look at situations where – <clears throat> especially in, in certain parts of Asia where it's so overpopulated and there is a lack of options. It's not as easy for them to go outside and find a ball game to take part in in real life because there are no ball games and there's too many people wanting to play in a ball game. And it's much easier to get lost in their own world 
with the devices and with the e-gamings. And again, that goes back to something that's been going on since the days of, go back to the 80s and Dungeons and & Dragons and role-playing right. games. And people getting lost in their games, lost in their world of the games. And again, I'm no psychiatrist, but I can certainly say that I think a big part of it too is early on, how much are you immersing yourself in it versus other activities in your life? And other activities include going to work and cooking and feeding and bathing. Yeah. Sorry to take that shot at the game developers out there, but you know, these are all activities that people who have, you know, at least in theory, full and rich lives take part in. A little bit of background there. Um, where Christopher and I teach, we've had students who are very successful uh, that go into uh, the gaming industry, which is not the area we teach in, but we're, we're very well connected to them. And uh, we've had students who become very successful out in the real world. They come back, and we noticed we have noticed a trend of what they tell the students. Um, so we're we're not just picking on on game developers. We're not saying you stink. We're saying that the game developers are telling. Uh, you that there is a problem with hygiene in that industry. So just a little bit of backstory of why we're making that joke. We we um, we were sort of floored the first time we heard a very successful student come back and say, "Hey, step one for your professionalism: take a shower." Um, and it was put that bluntly, if yes, I recall. Yes, it was. Right. Uh, step one. <laughs> so you know, before we move to the TLDR, the too long didn't read version of this of why it matters and who should be paying attention. I, I think it's really great that you call out some of the future concerns that we have as we move more and more towards urbanism. And I know there's been a counter push against urbanism recently in the past couple of decades. But as we bring ourselves back into cities, and we're talking super populated cities of a million, two million, three million people and up, we, we look at the living conditions to where you may out in the in, in suburban America, you may have an 1800 square foot home. But if we reintroduce this urbanization, which is happening all across the globe, you may end up with a 600-square-foot apartment for your family of three or four, right? When we see that level of urbanization, which is categorical in a lot of major cities, uh, especially the the major cities that we're talking about in Asia, uh, what's the easiest way to escape from that? Virtual reality headsets, video games, all of these um, virtual worlds, and and you know sometimes. When there's not necessarily an over uh, a park to go to because it's already overcrowded with other people looking for the same thing, uh, that becomes an issue. That's we talked about the evil companies. Why is uh, um, Disney's China Park so engineered to have wide open spaces? Because that's what inspires wonder in an overpopulated Chinese city, right? So all of these futuristic topics touch into this. But to wrap up. Who needs to pay attention to this? Let's just go through a list. I mean, we may overlist things in this uh, in the show from time to time, but really, who needs to pay attention here? Well, obviously, number one is the game developers themselves. They need to realize that they're no longer just making games for home entertainment. They're making games that potentially will draw large crowds of people as a spectator sport. Right. Keep adding those spectator modes in, game developers, hardware manufacturers. Absolutely. Um, again, you know, the more intuitive, the more... The game moves with you, as you mentioned, at reaction time, mm-hmm. you know, the lag time, if you will, sometimes. I'd be curious to know if companies that say their PC sales are down, like Asus and others, what are your component sales? Sure. Right? Is there a certain component you could target? I think you have to look, obviously, at internet service providers. You know. Yeah, definitely more trend towards uh, broadband and, and advanced connections. Uh, content networks, whether you're a television network, whether you're YouTube. This is something that's happening and definitely need to, um, to and, follow up and on. And how do you present it? Do you, do you literally just put you know, the, the player's screen on there 
Do you film it like you would an action movie? Do you do, you do crowd shots? Do you produce this like another sporting event? Show the crowd cheering? Show the player intently looking and, and maneuvering? And then show the screen? Do you, do you put the screen in a box in the corner while showing the crowd shots? How do you present it visually on television or live streams? Do you do commentary? So now we've added event coordinators. We've added producers. But I think the big target market here that our show needs to reach is are you a business targeting 18 to 34-year-old, primarily males right now, but that demographic is evolving, 18 to 34-year-old males in North America and Asia? Because I would be happy to slap the Nike swoosh on any one of those video games knowing that those are the people watching it. Right. It's bizarre to even think about it, but you know, if the player is wearing a T-shirt with your logo on it and they're getting screen time and they're getting FaceTime on the internet – you know, that's worth its weight in dollars. All right. Well, Christopher, thank you for joining me today and talking about this uh, wonderful esports topic. I think it's been really enlightening for me and I hope, hopefully for our audience out there as well. Thank you. Look forward to being back again soon. And that's almost going to do it for episode 35, but I did want to add this little note here after the fact. Um, It was a little bit odd to me that Christopher and I went the entire episode not talking about Twitch. Twitch uh, at twitch.tv is the largest video game streaming service online. We, We were talking more about YouTube because of the the uh, proliferation of video game videos that are on demand, but we really didn't talk too much about the live streaming, which is covered by Twitch and by uh, YouTube Gaming. So I will add links to those in the show notes. Just go to multinewmedia.com, click on episode 35, and those two links will be in the show notes for you. Also throw in a few uh, different things, uh, like we talked about the Stratomatic Baseball, for anyone interested in that. And for good measure, I'll throw in a link talking about the Formula One hybrid technology that I was mentioning that's been slightly controversial in recent days. All right, ladies and gentlemen, until next time, take care.